Welcome to season two of the Shop Still podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Jordan Crawford from Periodic Furniture Studio, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hello everyone, I hope you're all very well. Welcome back to episode number six of season two of the Shop Still podcast. Today I'm joined by only one of my co-hosts, uh, Joey, how are you today? Good Robin, how are you going? Not too bad, thanks. And uh, unfortunately, Jordan Crawford isn't with us again this episode. My name is Robin Lewis, thanks for being with us on the show. So for those of you who uh, joined uh, or listened last week, you would have known well, you would have heard that we sort of end, ended off on a very abrupt note. Uh, so, Joey, your plywood, it's obviously arrived in time and um, it was all there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was thinking afterwards when I said uh, four or $5,000 worth of uh, plywood, yeah. um, people must be thinking, well, there's like this giant pallet load of, of plywood. It was like five sheets. Right. Okay. Um, and it's like $650 a sheet. Uh, birch plywood with uh, a black or white matte or matte black or matte white HPL on it and it's just a solid one millimeter thick laminate mm. and especially made for bench tops and kitchen units and stuff and uh, it's three meters long by 1250 wide that's why I have it delivered yeah and uh, so you can get lots of yield out of the sheet and it's really awesome stuff but expensive so that's what you're using um, it was in one of your latest Instagram posts, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, the, is it HPL, you said? Yeah, high what pressure is, laminate. Ah, oh, okay. I thought that was some fancy spray term. Uh, no, You'd right. sent it away and got it sprayed uh, and okay. come back. Okay. No, no. Yeah, so it's a really hard wearing, like super hard to drill through. The saw blades are getting blunt really quickly. Uh, so, it's really good for kitchens. Um, the good thing, I think what it's made for is bench tops or desktops. Oh, wow, uh, that hard-wearing. Yeah, because of the sheet size, they make it 1250 wide, so you can cut a 610 or even 620 um, wide bench top, yeah. and you get you get two pieces. So for, for $650, you can get six meters of bench top, and that's pretty, right. pretty affordable when you think about it that way. Yeah, because I guess you'd need some space for scribing uh, the, the, the bench top in, so that's where that extra... Well, yeah, a little bit, but I mean, generally, that's on bench top six hundred. Six hundred is the. Yeah, I go for six twenty. Oh, okay. Because that way I can make my cabinet, including the door, six hundred, from the wall, leaving say ten mil behind the cabinets. Okay. Right. Right. That way, if the wall is in and out, there's just a little void all the way along the back of your cabinets and you don't have to worry about the wall being straight. Yeah, okay. Well, that's probably a good place to uh, lead into one of, our, one of the, the things that I really wanted to talk about today, and that is talking about cabinets. Cabinets is drawer slides. Now, this week I have been working on a project which we'll get into later, but I've been using drawer slides, the, um, I don't know what, the, the ball bearing type, is that what you'd call them? Yeah. And I've made a carcass and I've put these drawer slides in and it, it feels like every, every drawer that I put in, there's four drawers, every drawer that I put in, each one goes in slightly differently. Like one's got more pressure, yeah. one's got less. Yeah. 
and I'm trying to adjust these things. I, I mean, the, the, the carcass took me maybe a day to, to build. I probably spent yeah. half a day just adjusting these yeah. damn draw slides. So I'm interested to hear from your perspective. Do you spend a lot of time adjusting them and, and getting them, or, or have you got to the point now where you build the carcass or, or frame or whatever it is, throw in the draw slides and they just work? So it's a bit of a nuanced answer, I think. Um, there's a few there's a few things to consider. I think so firstly, how much you're paying for your draw slides, and generally, all of us, if we're going to put drawers in our workshops, we're going to buy like the five dollar, ten dollar mm-hmm. set. Um, so the build quality is way down, and the mm-hmm. tolerance quality is down. They probably usually those kind of side mounted ball bearing slides have a, a tolerance of plus or minus one and a half mil or something like that. I think that's what it says on the packet generally. So that's that, so they're assuming that you can either the carcass or your draw box can be out of out of size, under or oversized by around a millimeter. And now, would the would the more expensive ones have a bigger tolerance? No, but I think the tolerance actually works on the more expensive ones. <laughs> um, so these my, ones, these ones were they five hundred mil long. They yeah. are a forty-five kilo rating. Yeah. So I, I yeah. got them from Bunnings. Yeah. Twelve dollars a set. Right. So I wouldn't. Obviously, I don't know too much about it, but I wouldn't have thought that there would be a cheap set of draw slides. Obviously, they're not the, I can't remember the name well, of the ones that you get, those super high-end ones, but, you know, for it's, 12 it's bucks. Di- yeah, it's different, different uh, you know, it's apples and oranges. That type of draw slide, I've found, is always high friction. They're never particularly smooth. But, I mean, I've used the King Slide brand quite a lot if I use that kind of draw slide. And they actually make a push to open version, which assumes that everything's going to run nicely and smoothly. But even that, I think they are about maybe $19 or $20 for the push to open version. And it's a really good quality draw slide. I've found, unless everything is absolutely perfect, the carcass perfectly parallel, the draw perfectly square, unless everything is just right on, you're going to have issues with uh, binding. Especially with the push to open ones, if your draw, sl- if one draw slide is like a millimeter or half a millimeter back from the front of the carcass, um, more than the other one, so the left one might be back 10 mil and the right one might be back mm. 9 mil, that's going to cause a massive problem with the way the draw works. Yeah, and, I guess because there you need, like with just ordinary ones, if 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 the one side bottoms out and the other one doesn't, it's not really then yeah. the world. Yeah. But with the push to open ones, you know, they have to be kind of synchronized. And um, I just have gone away from them because even if I get them right two days later, three days later, if I'm going, if I'm taking the thing apart for paint or something, I put it all back together, it doesn't work as nicely. Yeah, so that that's everything that you're saying, everything that you're talking about, I've just spent <laughs> struggling with that. So the first yeah. one was that... Um, so I've, I've worked with the soft close and right. just had endless trouble with that. Yeah. But my thinking on that, it was, again, it was the same brand. It was the, it, they're called Goliath. That's right. the, the brand you get from Bunnings. My thinking on that was the problem with soft close is the mechanism that pulls it in has got to have some amount of friction. So when you're pulling that draw out and pulling it away from that mechanism, 
yeah. there is a certain amount of, of you're loading the spring yeah exactly which yeah. I in, in hindsight I wish I'd never done I actually don't like soft clothes for that anymore because you've got to pull it and if you get it wrong you pull your arm off because there's so much friction involved there yeah they're all a bit that way but the the better quality runners the less effort you have to pull in right, pull okay. to load it generally um, yeah. I actually was listening to the Against the Grain podcast a couple of weeks ago and uh, that's with Guy Dunlap and Justin Justin De Palma and Freddie Roman and Justin was they were talking about paint and um, do you shop around keep shopping around looking for paint and Justin said no don't keep looking for the perfect paint buy one paint that you like and just get really good at mm. that um, brand. Yeah. Know everything there is to know about it. Because if you can get a good finish with it, there's just endless varieties of paint. And and so I think you can take the same advice when it comes to things like draw slides. Yeah. Find a, something that you like. I've done that. And I'm really good at using the draw slides that I buy. Generally, I buy two types an undermount by Kingslide, mm -hmm. uh, really nice. I can put the draw together in about 10 minutes and put the runners in, works really great. Uh, and the other type is like more your, your kitchen style uh, drawers with the white powder coated steel sides. Yeah. And I mean, those drawers are so quick. Uh, yesterday I put six together in about half an hour. Because those would have a much bigger tolerance, wouldn't they? I um, the tolerance is about the same, one and a half mil, I think. But there's procedures, like, there's very easy to put them together. So you take your cabinet width minus 75 mil, that's how wide your draw bottom is. Every time it works, perfect. Mm. You don't have to play around with any other formula. Like, you've got one formula, and then you've got your draw bottom size. And once you work, that out and know how they all go together and the best way to do it. Like I say, I could do, I did six draws in about half an hour. Mm. Um, and it's just really quick. So I think my advice to you and anyone would be find a, a runner and shop around a bit until you find something that seems to work really well. And then once you've got it, just keep at it. Yeah. The other thing that you, you touched on was about once you've set it up and then you move it and then it's all out of alignment. So I had the same thing. I built the, the cabinet yeah. on my bench, took it off my bench onto the floor just next to it, which obviously it's all uneven and everything went out again. I had to, yeah. I had to basically go through 50% of the process again. What happens when with, with, with clients? Because do you sort of say, well, it worked in the workshop, therefore yeah. it's okay? Because that surely doesn't cut it. No, that's again why I use drawer runners and hardware that I know, uh, for example, the draw, two types of drawer runners that I usually use have good adjustment. I know that I can adjust them um, up and down two mils and left and right about two mils. Mm. Um, and so even if you take it in and out, something's going to sh shift or even just transporting a set of drawers in the a van, it's going to rattle around and things settle. And then by the time you put it in, it has to be readjusted. Just ha having that adjustment allowance, um, there's no other, I don't think there's another way around it. If you mm. use a drawer runner without allowance, like those ball bearing ones, it's really a pain in the ass. 
to do fine adjustment. If you're really looking for crisp uh, gaps between draw fronts and you've got mm. no fine adjustment, you've just got like a slot and a screw maybe at max. Yeah, well, you um, can't adjust it. You can't no. adjust the draw left to right with those. What I've, what I've ended up doing is just shimming it with... Uh, window packers, one and a half oh, okay. window packers, to try and get the 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 the, the draw to line up with the the frame. Right. But other than that, that's all you can really do, I guess. So that, what I do in that situation, if I'm going to do that, I will make a draw box and get the draw working, and allow for a, then a false draw front, which is then screwed on from inside the draw, mm. and it just hides all of the mistakes. It uh, hides the fact that the drawer is off center. The drawer itself might be off center, but the drawer front looks perfect. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was doing that more from the perspective of the the drawer wasn't running, wasn't tracking right. properly. Right. So it was. Yeah, on. sometimes you have to put packers in like that. Yeah. Yeah, but oh man, what just, and and I'm just interested from the perspective of as someone who hasn't done it very often, and is is this par for the course with it? Like. Should anyone who's thinking of trying draw runners, I saw a, a picture on Instagram of my, my cousin over in the UK. He's trying draw runners for the first time. And my first thought was, oh, <laughs> you've just gone down the worst road you can imagine. But is that just, is, is, is that part of the learning curve of it? Or are you doing something wrong if that's happening? Um, I think it's all about the systems. Like, I think those particular draw runners with the, the ball bearing slides are just not that good for furniture type mm. applications that a client's going to end up with. Um, and again, I think the more you pay, the better, the more options you get, like adjustments. Um, like simply going from a side-mounted runner to an undermount, a soft-close undermount runner, you suddenly get three, three-way three adjustment on the front of your drawer front. I've never used those before. Are they quite, are they a lot, a lot more forgiving? There's more forgiveness. The action is a hundred times better, like dead quiet, dead smooth, and right. The adjustment is just like a cherry on the top. Well, you still have to be as accurate as you can, but of course you're not going to be dead on every time. Mm. It just allows that little bit of correction once everything's sitting in place, and that's what you have to have if you're going to be supplying drawers and any kind of finished product. You have to be able to allow for some amount of human error be yeah. it a quarter of a mil or half a mil just getting two draw drawers to line up just perfectly um mm. you really want that adjustment yeah i uh, i went upstairs and said to my wife at the time i was just i was oh i was just <laughs> so down about it because i i got past the angry stage and it was yeah. just that that nihilistic what am i doing question <laughs> And as you said, this is why you're doing it as a shop project, as a, as a workshop project. This is where yeah. you, you learn all of these, these skills. Because the problem was, I said to her, like if I had a customer say to me, I want you to do a draw like this, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable now. Mm. I don't feel comfortable to do it. Yeah, I think maybe the issue in Australia, I'm not sure exactly, but presumably kitchen manufacturers and things are, buy, are going to wholesalers and getting better quality stuff than what Bunnings would typically stock. Mm. And I guess that would be my kind of advice to you is try to find somewhere that is um, more of a uh, wholesaler type place and yeah. see what see what's around. Ask for a um, 
they won't give you a price book straight away, but if they might have a catalog or at least a good website mm. uh, and you can see everything that they have. Um, that's, that would be my advice is to skip the Bunnings type hardware yeah, uh, because it's, it's not going to be the best stuff. Well, and I, th- I think as well, I'm going to give these undermounts a go. I didn't mm. realize that they were, and from a weight bearing perspective, they can take as uh, much. They generally, I use 35 kilo ones. And right. I think, you can pay like a third more and they jump up to like 60 kilo, which I've never used because I don't know why you're putting that much weight in a drawer. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, drawer <laughs> the drawer box is going to take that much, let alone the runners. So, yeah. um, you know, if you're only using six mil drawer bottoms, you don't want to put 60 kilo in there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, all right, well, yeah, maybe I'll give that a go. I got there in the end. So yep. that's all that counts. Sure. I probably wouldn't sell it as a fine furniture piece, but it, you know, it works. So happy with that. Um, now I'm about to be in the market for a new tool and I am questioning which tool I want to get. I've got, I've got two in mind. The one is an edge sander and the other is a drum sander. And for the last couple of weeks, I've been sort of toying with the idea, which one would I use more? And I know that that in itself is a bit of an impossible question because it depends what you want it for. The idea with the edge sander is just to give me the ability to, when I'm working with things like table legs, to be able to sand a nice mm. 90, crisp 90 degree corner. You know, one of those big, um, I don't know what, they, they're sort of the wide belt um, yeah. oscillating drum uh, edge sanders yeah. but then the drum sander was for when I'm doing tabletops just to be yeah. able to sand that down the problem is I'm finding all the mm. all the woods that I'm working with are curly and right. I just no matter how many times I put it through that thicknesser oh no you're gonna get tear out always getting tear out so I guess from that perspective it's you know I should be going for yeah. that drum sander that's, um, I mean, I would say it sounds like you need both tools. Hmm. And it's going to be it's a choice of which comes first. Um, it, an edge sander is pretty, uh, I mean, so just to explain, I think you're talking about like a large belt sander on a side. Correct, yeah. It's, I yeah. think they're about one, about a, about 1. 2. Long. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so it's decent. Yeah. Now, the good thing with that is that you can use it as a shaper, essentially like a big disc sander, and you mm. can sand radiuses, radii on things. On like you could put uh, a piece of plywood on there and just sand the corner off, yeah. really easy. Yeah, and you could follow a, a template, a line to a degree. Um, so in that sense, is more than one task you can do. Yeah. Um, now. For the example of table legs, a big sander like that is pretty cool because I know it take, can take forever prepping. Like if you do even one uh, one table, that's four legs times four. That's a bunch of sides. Um, personally, I would probably just run a smoothing plane down them, um, and that would be you one know, swipe. I, I watch you guys with your planes on you know your just about finished piece and you put a plate and i like the sweat's dripping off my phone because i'm just what if something goes wrong and you just you just destroy the piece yeah sometimes you kind of cross your fingers when when it's getting down to it um that's true now the other i've got a drum sander 
And right, it's, okay. It's six, uh, I think, 620 wide, so I think I can just get like a bench top size piece through it. And it's a double drum, so it's, so it's a double drum on the top. So it's made that you might have like 100 grit in the front and like 150 behind that. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Mm. Um, so really you just put the same grit on it and on both drums. It's a pain in the butt. It, I paid too much for it. I don't use it as, not, as, as, as much as I thought I would because it's a pain in the butt to set the um, sandpaper on it and stuff. Right. That's probably just the model I have. Um, it's pretty beefy. It does, when I need to, uh, I will use it. I find that it clogs up pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and that puts me off because I might get halfway through a stack of, say, small tabletops, and then I've got to change the sanding belt, <coughs> and then like the height is different, and then it, mm-hmm. so it's not everything's not going to be the same thickness, and it's like ah, this is just you know, I might as well just do this by hand. Yeah. Um, now I was looking at the. It, I know the one that you're talking about. I think Jordan's mm-hmm. got one similar to that. I right. was looking at the the open-ended one. So it's it's yeah. it's got the it's is just it like the a one jet roll. One? Correct. Yeah. So the jet. That's yeah. the exact one that I was looking at. And, um, and will you go for the oscillating one? Because I think they make the jet's the only company that make an oscillating one. Wait, are we talking about the drum sander? Yeah, the drum actually moves backwards and forwards, and it's meant to stop kind of clogging a bit. Oh, get, okay. Give more life. So the jets have a, have one like that, but um, it's fairly old, and I'm not sure that there's heaps uh, floating around in our side of the world anyway. Um, I don't think it does that. I don't remember no. reading that about it. Um, so you, is it like a 400, 800? Or yeah, inches. I think it's I, I think it's 1632. Yeah, yeah, which is I think it's 450, right. and then up to Nine. and then 900. Yeah. So there's exactly what you've talked about is one of my concerns. Is it's mm. it's one of those tools that's really great. You buy it, you set it up, you run your first board through it, but then from then on in, everything is just a pain <laughs> in the ass having to change. Yeah. So, Everything that I've read about it and all the people that I've talked to, because it's amazing how suddenly I'm looking at this tool, everyone's releasing videos where they're using this right. tool. There's a number of people who have asked about it. And they all said, no, it's a fantastic machine. It works pretty well. The other concern that I have is just the flexing of that, that yeah, shape. That's what I always thought. And But so many people use them, and obviously they work fine. And, and especially I hear good things about Jet over other Mm. Um, companies when it comes to the the drum sander so I mean it seems to me like really invaluable the where my drum sander has really been helpful is when I'm making my own veneers mm-hmm. um, and you rip something off the bandsaw and you put it through there a couple of times and you've got yourself um, a bunch of really awesome equal veneers yeah the drum sanders tend to handle thinner stock a lot better because you can use one part of the drum and then the next strip that goes through you can move over oh, yeah. a piece and then and then move over a bit and that gives the sandpaper a chance to declog and cool down and then you can go back and that's where running thin pieces through really is I don't mind when I'm mm. really maxing it out if I'm putting 600 mil through my sander um, it really doesn't like it the sandpaper just heats up it doesn't get a chance to clear out properly 
and I, so I, I find that is an issue. But that's when I really want the sander to work because if I can mm. get a, a big wide piece through really quick, then it saves me a lot of time. And those but, sticks, those those um, sandings, I don't know what they're called, where you're supposed to run it yeah. over and it clean. Do they work? It does a bit. Uh, it doesn't when you get a really stuck bit. That just makes more sandpaper uh, sand sawdust get stuck to that, and and then the rubber kind of stick won't shift that. And that's right. annoying because that starts leaving gouges in your work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. so if I'm going to be using it to take, so this, this all came about because I was, I'm working on an idea for a side table where I've got, uh, it's two pieces of paper bark, which have been, uh, it's, it's from a log, yeah. opened up. Book matched. A, book matched, that's the word, thank you. And the legs are going to be tapered. Right. So they come down about 50 mil and then they taper it down. Yeah. So you can see where the edge sander comes in because yeah. you'll be able to get a nice clean um, yeah. edge or corner on that taper. But then the top is the, the actual piece of wood where you've got the sort of in the center, you've got some kind of crotch going on. Mm. So I've run that through my thickness yeah. <laughs> and it's probably taken about a two mil maybe even three mil chunk out in yeah. places. Am I gonna spend my life waiting probably. for that to sand down? Because it doesn't uh, sand very quick, does it? No, I mean, probably you're moving, most sanders have like probably a 0.1 or 0.2 um, depth adjustment, kind oh, of works in, in, <laughs> in sub millimeter kind of um, movement range. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about, like, for example, those legs. I've done tapered legs like that, and I've actually rough cut them on a jig, say, on the table saw. Mm. Um, and then, or you, you could probably do it on your band saw. Yeah. And then I would clean them up on the jointer and just yeah, set the true. jointer. You can set the jointer to, like, you know, half a mil and just take a cleaning pass until yeah, they're that's nice a good and point. flat. Um, and that does the same thing and probably leaves a better finish if it's sharp, um, but there is, and because you're cutting a taper, you're less likely to get tear out if you're going the right way with the grain. Yeah, provided I'm, I'm, I've got that luxury. You, well, you should do, because it's the taper, you're cutting through the grain anyway. So even if you've got, so if you've got, oh, dead, yeah, okay. if you've got dead straight grain and you're cutting a taper, you're always going to be going uh, with the grain if you don't run the wrong way up the taper. And so you get a yeah. really nice cut that way uh, off the off a blade. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because I guess you're always sort of shaving down. That's right. That's right. And you can see that on the side of the wood, and you just make sure you go the right way. And um, it's more tricky with square stock because then you have to really take into account the actual grain direction and work out whether or not you're going to get uh -huh. tear out. Um, and some boards just have changing grain direction halfway through and it sucks and you can't do anything so. I, you, you know i look i watch these videos where <laughs> online where guys are talking about oh I've, I've run this through my thickness and it's come out sanding ready and yeah. you know i can do that with pine maybe yeah. up to like vic ash but all the other spotted gum morton bay ash this paper bark none of it my thickness uh, hates it i mean may, is is there an argument then to be don't waste your time with these two machines just get a better thicknesser well that is uh that would be an argument um 
I would say I don't know what those species are like to work with personally, but I would say if you were to then, if you, for example, to use a spiral head cutter in your thicknesser, you probably wouldn't have any problems at all. Yeah, dealing so I've with got, that more I've tricky one, timber. I've got one of those segmented heads, so right. it's kind of like a middle between the knives. Uh, okay. That the, the actual knife is still cutting at a at a flat. A yeah. flat angle, yeah. whereas I think with the segmented heads, they actually come in on a slight angle, which is That's where you right. get that improvement, yeah. Yeah, and there's less cutting force in any one place, and so in theory, I think the theory is the machine works slightly less hard to maintain a speed, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that actually is true, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, um, so to come back to your question... I don't know. <laughs> Impossible question. I know. And so, I, I yeah. would, my guess would be I would take the edge sander because I can probably see myself using that more, especially for sanding small things, small fiddly like chair parts or things that just need to be have a flat part mm. sanded up. I can just kind of go bang, hold it on there for 10 seconds, finished. Whereas I can hand plane a tabletop and hand sand it pretty quickly. Uh, what? And take three mil off? Uh, well, that is a separate issue. And it sounds like you might have to hand plane that out because if you yeah. keep putting it through the thickness, you're going to keep getting tear out. Um, I have cheated in the past if I've had a really big tear out in like a, a board that's going on a tabletop. If I can't turn the board over and I have to have the the tear out up, I will. I have filled it with epoxy. So I did that with the, the Morton Bay Ash cabinets that I did a few months ago. And I thought, oh, this will be fine. It's a nice <laughs> clear epoxy. And it was the bottom shelf. So I, was, I got right. quite lucky. But when you hit it with light on an angle, you can just see all these puddles right. <laughs> through, through your board. It's, and I, I don't know, maybe in your situation, you're talking about like one particular area. Yeah. I yeah. had about... I know what you ten, mean. Like ten of these dots, and you, you do ripples. See them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I have tried that years ago, and I had the same thing where you just end up looking like all these glassy spots, and it looks yeah. terrible. Also, the clear epoxy tends to yellow. So my my lessons from that are: if I'm going to fill a void, it's got to be with like black epoxy. Like, make it a feature. Make right, it okay, like, yeah, that's a good idea. And just make it so, yeah, there's a bit of filler here and I'm not lying about it, there it is. And then it's just, okay, that looks better than trying to hide it with clear because yeah, I've done that and it just turned out awful. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess the other thing as well is I can just go back to the old orbital sander. And this particular, this is a side table that I'm doing, so the actual surface is, is relatively small. Mm. Um, so, you know, I can always just do it by hand and that's what I've always done up till now. What so, hand planes have you got? Yeah, so I've only got, I've got a block plane and a, I think it's a number five. Okay. It's either a four or five. I don't have like the arsenal of yeah. that. Or isn't it, wouldn't you be using a high angle for, for um, curly stuff? There's probably, yeah, probably would. Uh, I would try... Three mils deep, eh? How thick is your total timber? <laughs> Unfortunately, on the one side, I'm, I'm just about there. So I don't have too much to work with. Yeah. Don't suppose you can put it through the bandsaw and just chop off a curve and then just... Oh, no, boy, jeez, no chance. <laughs> like, no. That, 
<laughs> I don't have that skill. That's okay. no, that would be taking too much. Now it's as I say, I think I'll just I'll, I'll I'll keep thinking about it. It's really interesting what you say about the edge sander because that is the versatility of it. One of the things that I thought about was when you are making a box and you're flushing up the the bottom panel. Yeah. If you oversize the bottom panel and then yeah. you're flushing up the side panel. Another perfect example of what yeah. the edge sander can do. So maybe I should lean towards that, but yeah. Especially if you're doing like, if you do any amount of paint quality stuff, I would say something like an edge sander is perfect because you can clean, like you say, you might have a finger joint or something on a box. You can just slap mm. it on there, bang, bang, two sides, it's done, ready for primer. Yeah. Um, so that is a bonus for that. Why, why do you say for paints? Well, you're not going to get a clear coat ready finish off unless you're running a really high grit, in which case you've had to go through a couple of belts. But you would never use the belt for final finishing, would you? No, that's what I mean. So you can probably put, say, 100 grit. I mean, it depends what you're doing. Mm. <laughs> you can probably put 100 grit on there, slap it on a finger joint on a corner of a box, and then slap some primer on it and see what it looks like. Oh, then, oh, I see what you're saying. Or take or it back, if, orbital sand up to whatever. Yeah. Or you'd orbital sand it, but you could. I mean, in theory, you could put, say, a 180 grit belt on the on it and do some finished sanding on it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, it will clog, probably tend to clog up, but um, it's probably feasible. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, all right. Well, now you've, got, you've actually shifted me in the opposite direction, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, what have you been working on this week? Oh, man. Um, trying to manage time is what I've been working on. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit last week, but obviously we got cut off. Uh, the, I've got so much coming in. Well, it has slowed down a bit since my ramblings a couple of weeks ago. Mm. But it's I just haven't been able to get back to people. I've just been... My emails are just... There's so many in the list that there's just they're just dropping out of view and I forget about them. Yeah. And um, so I've been getting lately this kind of series of, hey, I emailed you three weeks, four weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, can you price this up for us? Or, and I'm like, oh, my God, sorry. Um, or even just a job where I completely forgot to do it. I'm like, oh, my God, uh, next time I'm at the timber yard, I'll pick it up and I'll get it done straight away. Yeah. Um, and so I've just been trying to manage everything that's happening. And so I've been making lists and lists and lists. I've been saving me every day I, now. It seems like what I do now, first thing in the morning, is just walk up to the whiteboard and make a list of everything that has to happen that day, yeah. which used to just be in my head. But because I've got my assistant, um, it's much easier for him just to read the list than bother me with if I'm emailing or whatever I'm doing. Um, and so that really helps the day move along if, if everyone knows what they're meant to be doing, it seems so simple, but it's just not something I'd actually done and physically written down a list that everyone can read. Um, so there's a list. I've got a whiteboard in the workshop and a whiteboard in the office, and that is a different list of stuff that I need to do. And right now it's like full of stuff. You need that, a new whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow I've got a massive day. I'm like first thing in the morning I'm driving an hour and a half to measure up for a kitchen and then I've got like six things to do on the way back to make sure that we're ready for a Monday install and um, you know, it's just yeah. like trying to get 
be as efficient as possible with my time. Like if I'm going to go out for the day, I need to be doing multiple things. Um, yeah. So when you, when you, cause we've talked in the past about how you don't like to have too many jobs lined up. So yeah. you, you don't want to be working on too many at once. When you plan out your day, do you have an idea of in the morning, I'm going to be here in the afternoon, I'm going to be here. In the evening, I'm going to be here. Or do you go into your day sort of just going like, I'm working on this project. Whatever happens during the day or whatever I have to do for that project, as it comes up, I just do it. Um, lately, it's been more like I know where we need to be by the end of the day. Generally motivated by that, that means I can give someone an invoice. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, at this point, I know I can send a bill out for a progress or something like that. Yeah. So, I'm like, okay, this is the start. This is the end of the day. And these steps need to happen, A to Z, before I can do that final step of giving a bill. And so, that was the case today. This morning, it was like seven things had to happen on this kitchen I'm working on. And as soon as that last thing happened, I was on the computer. I sent some photos and sent off a bill. And I was like, right, that's a weight, a load off my shoulders. I know I'm getting paid next week, and let's move on. What else needs to happen? Yeah. Which, um, in this case, was a whole lot of painting I've just done. So, yeah, it's, um, I have a goal, and then I'll work as fast as I can because, ideally, I want to get that done and something else done. <laughs> yeah. I don't just want to do my goal. I want to do my goal plus. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's how stuff actually gets done. It's just by really pushing. Yeah. So I've been working on a mitosaur station and yes. we've talked about mitosaur stations in the past. Last season, we talked about it from the perspective of a, a good video to put out on YouTube. So right. we'll see if the, the prophecy is, is, <laughs> is yeah. true. I'll probably be releasing it at the beginning of next week. So I'm really crossing fingers because the last video that I put out was, uh, it's, it was actually an old video. It was with a, um, a studio roller. So it's one of these where you oh, roll yeah. the paper down. Yeah. I thought the video right. would, would appeal to a very wide audience because it was a very DIY. It wasn't very woodworky. It was pretty simple, but it was DIY. So I thought it would appeal to a very wide audience. It just flopped. It just <laughs> died in the water. I think at the time of recording this, it's like two and a half thousand views. It's just awful. <laughs> but yeah. the video before that where I made that cubby storage thing, that, that did pretty well. So I kind of really want to have a couple of good wins in a row. Yeah. So hopefully this video does well. What I'm, what I'm using for sort of the selling point of this is um, the design of it is uh, your, your floating panel rail and style type um, construction. But what I've done is on the legs, I've rebated a, well, I've created a rebate to the thickness of the plywood that I'm using yeah. and then glued the plywood into the legs. So you, yeah. on the outside, you see this, mm. what looks like a floating panel on the inside. Yeah. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever thought of yeah. doing that before? That's, I think that's how I did the ends of my workbench. Right, okay. It's because probably the first time I did that, I suppose. Um, because if it doesn't matter what the inside looks too much, then you just get a deeper panel look on the outside. Uh, and it looks good. The benefit of it as well is that you then have a nice flat surface to put your yeah, any, any hardware and whatever. Exactly. So yeah. I, I, I'd i been thinking of it for a while, went online, did a bit of research, couldn't really find anyone who was right. doing it. Everyone, every 
um, every article I looked at was either floating the panel, you know, so yeah. you've got a gap around it, which obviously from a structural perspective doesn't help, or you put plywood, but you still sandwich it in a in a groove. Right. Yeah. There was no. I, way I do that for doors. I'll do that, um, but that I I'm, I I can't think of an uh, example where I've done that on a piece of client's work. Um, it would to me is a bit more utilitarian. Although there is, I think you could probably do it on like a door, a panel door, and then mm. if you had to, you could bog up the any the gap where the plywood meets the rail in style. Like you have a little join line. Yeah, but the the way I've done it is that there is no gap. So right. when you put Dead the tight. legs on, you squeeze the legs into the plywood. Your plywood becomes your your square. That's yeah. what's square. Yeah. And so it's besides the fact that the the pine legs and the plywood are a slightly different color. Yeah. If you had it the same color, it would it would be a pretty solid right. finish all the way across. I have actually thinking about it. I have done it um, for door panels. But um, in the sense of making it, say, for workbench legs, for example, what's good about it is you can actually start with the plywood as the structural element. Yeah. In my case, I, I use 18mm ply, and you can build the leg around the plywood by just gluing and screwing as you go around, and then you can add whatever fasteners. Either you could you could mortise and tenon the rails and styles together, depending on what it is that you're doing, or if you if it's really utilitarian, you could just put a big fat screw through and join them that way. I mean, if, if it's just workshop kind of furniture that just needs to just needs to be there so you can work on it, then it doesn't matter what it looks like. Um, but it is a very strong way to, to build because the plywood is, is the bracing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because that's sort of going to be my um, my selling point or my unique right. point of the video is that it's, well, that's cool. it's something yeah. that's not done very often. And that's why I was just wondering if it is done, because it, from yeah. my research, I couldn't find anyone actually doing it like that. What I have done, so when I've done it on the doors, I've made, I've glued up the rail in style, so you have like a, a frame, and then using a bearing guide on a, or a router bit, uh, mm. create, create the rebate yeah, okay. afterwards. Now you end up with rounded corners. Yeah. What I then did is made a jig to follow my the same rebate bit followed uh, a plywood template and I rounded the corners of my panels ah, okay. with that and then they just fit straight Perfect in perfectly fit. and then you end up with this kind of interesting detail on the inside of rounded off um, now anyone, some people go oh no you can't have rounded corners it shows that you're just cheap and nasty I've, I've heard that kind of before Yeah. Um, and you, yeah you can take the time to uh, square square out the rebates with a chisel, and I've done that too. Yeah. But sometimes the job doesn't call for that much time being allowed for, and um, if it's being painted, it doesn't really matter. And that that angle that would that to me just rings a sort of a 1950s, yeah, 1960s. It those, does add a, a detail to it. And on the, at the end of the day, it's on the inside of the cabinet, and I really don't see that it's yeah. that big of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's a cool it's a cool way to make rail and styles, um, you know, in a in an easier way that isn't necessarily high end furniture, but it is certainly uh, a way to do it. And it went yeah, it went together so quick, and 
<laughs> I'd love to say it's really strong and holding amazingly <laughs> true, but as we've just discussed with the draw slides, right. everything stopped. Everything was just, <laughs> I had my um, uh, ratchet straps out and I was pulling everything in and bracing everything up. And yeah, I think that's about the only way I could get it as square as possible. It was the, it was the, the front to back squareness right, that right. just wouldn't you know i put in 245s underneath <laughs> to try and hold it but it just didn't want to stay so you know what i saw on instagram which i think i might copy at some point or that you did you you put a, a stop block into the top of your uh, of the table right a, a movable stop block yeah 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 i thought that was genius having it on the actual flat kind of a flush into the tabletop and then you could just slide um, slide the stopper along without having a fence. Because I made this big complex thing with a fence, and it's okay, but nothing's that straight over. My fence is 4.8 meters long, yeah. and, and nothing is that straight over 4.8 meters, and I, I should just get rid of it. I guess the only thing thinking about it now is that that track is going to fill up with stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, and uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was gonna, that was the second bit about the video that I was going to use was the fact that yeah the the fence or the, the track is the fence because yeah. it's a very straight piece of 1.2 meter aluminium yeah so why go and put it into some some wood that could be all over the place and it's it's about 10 mil high which okay. for most for most purposes that's going to be a, a good enough fence yeah. you know it's not hugely high and a lot of people commented saying, why didn't you recess it? Oh, I see. I, so the tracks actually is the fence, but it's only 10 mil high. I thought the whole thing was flushed down in, into the tabletop. Oh, no, no, no. So, oh, okay. so that I'm, I've literally, I've clamped a, a straight edge onto my miter saw so to, to figure that out. Yeah. And then I've clamped the track onto that. Right. And then that's screwed it. Screwed it in place. Yeah. Screwed it in place. It's, a lot of people said to me, well, why didn't you recess it in? Because then you can use your bench you've got more bench mm, space yeah but the answer i've always come back with is that's i don't want that right because as soon as you've got a bench space <laughs> there you've yeah. got stuff on that bench whereas now this can only be yeah. and the, the other thing as well is i've got drawers in a, in a video after this one i've put just put together a simple drawer unit to sit behind it so you right. won't need it anyway but yeah it just seemed like a a, a really simple way to do it and while all these videos out there where these guys make these elaborate fences and it's, yeah. it's all fantastic. I mean, yeah. it, it looks great, but it really does the same job. I, yeah, the only, the only time I can see that a short fence not working and you would need a fence more like I've got, which is 150 mil tall, is when you're cutting uh, Scotia moldings, what the Yanks will call crown mm -hmm. molding. You need to be able to um, sit it on the 45, like a piece of molding can't sit flat when you're, you're mitering it. It has to sit up on the angle. Yeah, and, um, and, and it's not just enough to hold it at the fence at the miter saw. Because uh, if you think about it, the yeah, fence, it is. It the is, fence, the fence yes. is kind of redundant right. altogether. You, you are right, it does. Um, and that's the whole argument where people have been saying it now these days, you don't need fences on miter saws because there's a short fence on the miter saw and if your piece of wood is square along that piece of fence it doesn't for matter for that section yeah it doesn't matter yeah. what the rest of the piece of wood's doing because if it's bent it's bent 
and so it's relative to that kind of four five hundred mil section of timber. That's yeah. the angle you're cutting is relative to that. Um, and I get that because it does annoy me, especially if you're cutting rough sawn timber. If I'm just trying to dock some timber down to length uh, and then go and mill it up, I have to be pretty careful about how I cut it because it's not touching the fence at all when I start cutting it. Yeah, and the, and yeah. the miter saw, saw does all sorts of funny things. Yeah, that's how things explode, yeah. Yeah, and is your one a slide or just a drop saw? Just the drop. Yeah, okay, yeah. so that's a bit trickier. At least with, so if you have a piece of wood that's bowing towards you mm. and away from the fence and there's a gap between the piece of timber and the fence, what, when you cut it, the piece of timber wants to go back towards the fence and yeah. it jams the blade. Yeah, it's happened to me once before. Um, and But with the pull saw, I start pulling my way from the front uh, towards myself and that lets the timber kind of, it relaxes its way as the saw comes through it. Right, but and, the, and you've got and enough you strength to pull it. Well, yeah, you just pull it, and the, and the saw is pulling the timber towards the fence, but it's cutting as it does it. But it does, the strength is not letting it jump towards you. Um, that's where you have to be a bit careful, because it wants yeah. to climb over the timber and, and shoot towards you, the way that the blade oh, works. Yes, yes, that's right, yeah, yeah. With, with just a drop saw, you tend to start cutting in the middle or the front edge of the timber first, and that's mm. when you're going to have issues with a piece of timber that's bowed. Yeah. But because you don't have a big long fence, you don't worry about it. You just shift the wood until it's sitting against the fence at that particular part. Yeah, and to be fair, I've only ever had that happen in the however many years I've used it. So I've only ever happened, had it happen once. Yeah. And there's been situations where I've been, and for the audio listeners who can't see my face, I'm, I'm really squinting, where you're holding the wood <laughs> and you're sort of, oh, it's going to go any minute. Yeah. And it hasn't. The blade just gets gets yeah. rid of the waste so for the most yeah. part that hardly ever happens yeah that can be fun things my i've my old neighbor um back in adelaide he had he was it was a carpenter for all of his life he was retired he had one injury and that was on the, his forearm and he got it from a miter saw and i was always amazed at the fact that he was injured from a miter saw because they just right. seemed like the safest tools and this was an older one where it didn't have that guard uh, yeah. and it also didn't have the brake and he was yeah. cutting with his right hand yeah. and pulling reach timber across. reach across with his left arm and it yeah. just took him yeah. yeah and i just thought of all the tools a miter saw to me like you can do that with your arms behind your back and you're, ne you're not going to injure yourself yeah these days with the the guards i remember when they didn't have guards uh, i think i'm just old enough to remember like what they were <laughs> like and how bloody dangerous they were and it was absurd to think that they didn't put guards on these things. I mean, they had yeah. a guard, but it didn't move. And so once you drop the saw, if the saw didn't spring all the way back up, which they often didn't, didn't, the blade is exposed and you go to grab your piece of wood and the blade is like a centimeter above your hand. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy what they used to do. Uh, yeah. When he used to fire this thing up, it would just make this such a racket and then it would it would spin down like mine's got yeah. a break so you let yeah. go and, it, and the blade yeah. stopped in a second this thing would you know wind down like a like a jet engine yeah it was the just the just listening to it was terrifying yeah of course that all that stuff's illegal i think in most countries these days uh i think certainly in europe and here that it has to the blade has to stop spinning within 30 seconds i think oh, uh, right. which is i think it's even more less than that 
30 seconds seems like a long time. I think the, like my saw, my hammer saw, the blade stops in about eight seconds or, or less. Ah, oh, jeez. So. Sure. Cool. All right. I reckon we'll leave it there for today. Uh, to everyone listening, I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really helps us out. The Shopstool podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps as well as YouTube. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey, thanks for hanging out today. Take care, everyone, and we will see you in the next one. All good. See ya.